Our New Testament reading comes first from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now from Luke 18, verses 9 through 17. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them to him, called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are beginning a new um, sermon series this Sunday, and this series will take us uh, into the middle of the summer. And as you may have guessed, as Allison was reading, this series is on what has come to be known as the Beatitudes. And that's not a word that we use every day, right? And you may not know what are the Beatitudes. You may have learned when you were younger the Beatitudes are like, like, have this attitude. But that's not actually where we get the word. The word comes from the first word of every statement that Jesus makes at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed. It comes from the word blessed. And he's saying these people are blessed. And what he's giving us in these Eight, sometimes people divide them differently, eight or ten, we're going to divide them eight ways. These eight statements are all marks of what it means to know Jesus, to belong to him and to belong in his kingdom. And so over the next um, eight weeks, we'll be looking at each one of these statements. We'll take another passage uh, that's so, as sort of a companion passage that will help us maybe unfold and understand what Jesus means by that statement. And so in our staff meeting this week, I was explaining this to our staff and what we're doing next. And they asked me, do you have like a, is there like a title uh, for this series? Like sometimes like a name for the series. And for when we did 10 commandments, it was 10 reasons that you needed Jesus. And I was like, no, I don't really have 
like a, I don't always do that. I don't have a title for this one. It's just the Beatitudes. And they, so they wanted to brainstorm some names that we could give this series. And of course, one of the first ones, hashtag blessed, would be good. Uh, my, my personal favorite, though, came from, I believe it was Tanner, um, who wanted to name it Living Your Blessed Life Now. So we're not naming it anything. Um, It's just the Beatitudes series. And this morning, we're looking at this first one, um, Blessed Are the Poor in Spirit. And sort of the reason that we're doing this is we we looked at the Ten Commandments leading up to Holy Week. And in many ways, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of, and, and you saw this as we went through the Ten Commandments, Jesus refers to them over and over and over again and unfolds them. And I think it's interesting that at the beginning of his most famous sermon, he starts with these types of statements. And so we're going to unpack those over the next few weeks, but before we do, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that this morning what we actually get to do is hear your son teach us and speak to us. And we may have grown so accustomed to that and it's so normal to us that we're not in awe of it, that we're not fascinated by it. Um, But in these words that Matthew records for us, he says that Jesus sat down and he opened his mouth. And so I pray that as Jesus opens his mouth, that you would help us to listen, that you would help us to hear what he has to say to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little over a year ago, on May 19th, 2018, about 30 million Americans were just absolutely glued to their TVs. And in your mind, I can see it on your faces, in your minds you're trying to remember what happened on May 19th, 2018, that 30 million people tuned in for. Because now we watch everything whenever we want to watch it right? We can stream it whenever we want to stream it. But 30 million people at the same time sat down and watched this thing, and you're thinking, it wasn't the Super Bowl. There's no major really sporting event that takes place in May. Was there like a national tragedy that happened that caused everyone uh, to tune in? No, it wasn't that either. 30 million people tuned into a wedding. Did anybody guess it? Some, some of you did. I see the, the joy on your face. I know. You wanted to call it out, and you could have. Uh, and it wasn't just any wedding, right? It was a royal wedding. It was the wedding of Prince Harry, who many of us have actually watched grow up. And so the question, you know, arises, as I watched, I didn't watch it at 5 a.m., Um, when other people set their alarm to watch it. I watch clips later like a sane person. But the question was, why why do this many Americans care enough to like set their alarm and get up and tune in to a wedding for royalty of another country? And I think there's always been a fascination with royalty. There's always been a fascination, especially with British royalty. And But this one especially, I think, caught our attention. And I think maybe the reason is the person that Prince Harry was marrying. Her name's Meghan Markle. Markle? Is that how you say it? Markle, thank you. Meghan Markle. And 
when I first heard, in, in all of the news that surrounded their engagement, and there was a lot of news that surrounded their engagement, it, it, made, it made you pay attention. And when I first paid attention, I thought, who's that? Wasn't she on some show maybe at some point? Like, is it, wait, isn't she American? And the thought is, and maybe what interests us so much is like, why does she get to be in the royal family? Like, what are the requirements? Like, why is she so special that she now gets to be called the Duchess of Sussex? If that, is that right? Is that right, Helen? Is that, the Duchess of Sussex. We have our one British representative in the room. Uh, why does she get to do that? A couple of weeks ago, millions of Americans turned on their TVs again at the same time and tuned in uh, to the Masters. A tradition like none other. Um, And that's not so unusual. Every year people tune in to the final round, especially the Masters. But this year in particular, they were tuning in because Tiger Woods was back on top. And that was significant, as you know, um, because Tiger Woods has been for the last, I think, 10 or 11 years, um, almost every sports analyst has says he's done, he's finished, he's washed up, and then he goes on and he wins the Masters. And you ask the question, like, what does it take to be that phenomenal? What does it take to be that good? And you remember uh, the book that came out a few years ago that kind of caught everyone's attention by Malcolm Gladwell. It was sort of the first one, I think, that really hit the bestseller list called Outliers. And he gives this theory of what it, what it takes to be that good. And it takes, he says, 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours of of dedication, 10,000 hours of concentration. Um, We could put it another way, about 10 years of of determined focus to be that good at something. So my question for us this morning is this. Who gets to be in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, what does it take? What are, what are the requirements? I mean, that's a really important question. That might be, um, even though you wouldn't have phrased it that way, that might be one of the questions that you had in your mind as you showed up to church this morning. And you look around and you, and you see other people who seem to be doing maybe a little better than you're doing. Or seem to not have messed up in the ways that you messed up this week. And you kind of think in the back of your mind, what does it mean for me to be a member of God's family and to be a part of, as Jesus phrases, the kingdom of heaven? What does it take? What does it require? So Jesus opens his mouth, and this is what he tells us in the next eight statements. And he pronounces, there are those who are blessed. And because they are blessed in this way, what belongs to them in this astounding statement, is the kingdom of heaven. There are those who are blessed, and what belongs to them is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm sure that we, um, if we were there, or even now as we, as we read this, and we think about what Jesus is doing, we might have in our minds what he would say first. Blessed are the blank, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is no kingdom that's higher than the kingdom of heaven. 
The kingdom of Great Britain will be forgotten. The kingdom of heaven will endure forever. The gates of hell will never prevail against it. So surely the requirements for entry are pretty rigorous, right? And besides that, I mean, we live in a world where everything that we do, we are measured. And there are standards. And there are requirements. We live in what's often called a meritocracy. That if there's something that's good that's coming to you, you will get it if you meet the certain requirements and if you work hard enough to earn it. And I imagine the people that are gathered around Jesus that day were, they had their own ideas as well about what he might say. I mean, a crowd has gathered and Jesus goes up on this mountain and he sits down and he opens his mouth and he begins to teach. And there's these different kind of crowds that are probably around him like there always were. There's always almost two groups of people with Jesus. There were the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests. And then there were all the rest. And in the rest was mixed some of his disciples and some who were um, seen to be uh, sinners, tax collectors. And Jesus is about to tell them what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And I I imagine they had ideas of what he might say, that they could quickly glance around that crowd and they could look and see, that guy over there looks like kingdom of heaven material. He has put in his 10,000 hours. I have watched him and I know that what I see is somebody who appears to be righteous. And you could also glance around the crowd and you could think, what are they doing here? What right do they have to even be listening to this teacher? That there were an awful lot of people who looked very righteous. There were the Pharisees and the scribes and there were the chief priests And there were people like the Apostle Paul who at one point described himself like this, which I, I, this, this description of himself before he met Jesus is kind of, it's always astounding to me. He said, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Let me give you a summary. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, I am faultless. What are the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth as he begins to teach? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That would have been a shocker. That's not what anybody was guessing that Jesus was going to say. So I want to ask a few questions this morning, really simple questions. I want to ask, what does that mean? I want to ask, why is that crucial? And then I want to ask, how do we get it? What does it mean, why is it crucial, and how do we get it? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I've asked some people this question this week. Because I actually think it's sort of confusing. To be poor in spirit, what does, what does that actually mean? Um, does it mean that Jesus is just talking about people who are materially poor? So in order to receive the kingdom of heaven, you must actually be materially impoverished. 
No. That, that's not a moral state necessarily. That It doesn't mean that if we just are materially poor, then we instantly gain the kingdom of heaven. You might be materially poor, or you might be materially quite wealthy, and you could still be poor in spirit. So to be poor in spirit is to be just what it says. It's to be spiritually impoverished. It's to understand that when it comes to you spiritually, you are someone who is poor. Now, what does it mean then to be poor? Just think about the choice of words. I mean, Jesus has chosen these words for us. Think about what it means to be poor. What does it mean to be poor? It means that you don't have the necessary resources to get the thing that you need, right? To be poor means that you don't have the necessary resources to get the thing that you need. I have a friend who, he's about 10 years older than I am, and he was telling a story once about he went on a date back when he was about 17. So this would have been the 80s the glorious 80s. And so he said he was uh, driving this 1970s kind of land yacht of a car with like a you know 40-gallon tank that they used to put in those things, and he picks this girl up. He's really excited to go on this date, and after he picks her up, he notices like he is running on empty. And so he's no problem. I'm going to pull into the gas station, fills that, that bad boy up all the way, goes inside to pay because they didn't have a little debit thing. You couldn't pay at the tank, you know, and goes inside to pay, opens his wallet, and there's nothing in it. He didn't have any money, and he didn't have a credit card, and that was the last date he went on with that girl, right? <laughs> but that you've had that feeling before? Like, you've had the feeling when you realized what it took, and you realized you didn't have it. That's the feeling of being poor in spirit. It's looking at what is required. It's seeing God in all of his holiness and understanding what it means to stand before a holy and righteous God and looking honestly at yourself and realizing, I don't have it. It's not that I just need like a little more time. It's not that I need like an excellent discipleship course. It means that no matter what, I do not have the resources. I need rescue. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus Jesus was always explaining this in different ways. And when I was thinking about um, another passage to sort of hold up to this passage to help us understand it, there are so many that it was hard for me to choose. But I think Jesus often told parables, and sometimes those parables um, really clarify something, and sometimes they actually obscure it, so much so that Jesus' disciples oftentimes, he would tell a parable, and afterwards, you know, they had the look on their face where he was like, you don't understand what I'm talking about, do you? And he has to gather them around and kind of explain the parable. Well, the parable that we read this morning is not one of those. It's really simple. And it's really clear. And Luke even helps us out a little bit if we want to know why Jesus told this particular parable. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
Okay, so around Jesus and gathered around Jesus, it's, it's always that mixed crowd. And, they, and part of that crowd are people, like I said before, who, who they put in their 10,000 hours. They are phenomenally righteous looking. And then around him are some that the righteous looking ones probably have not been that close to before. And he has those two groups there. And he decides to tell this parable aimed at the ones who thought they had what it took. They thought this is what it means to be a good person, a moral person, a person that God finds acceptable. And so he tells this really blatant parable. Two men that represent the two kind of people in the group go into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee. Pharisee is a a very good person, right? We view them with like little horns. If you grew up in church, like little horns on their head. They didn't have little horns on their head. They were angelic because they loved God's law. And they were very precise about it. And so when he goes in and he goes in to pray, that's what he talks about. That I'm not like these other people. I'm not an extortioner. You know, I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this other guy who's praying, this tax collector. Tax collector is despised, seen as a traitor and a criminal. And yet he comes into the temple to pray as well. And he stands afar, he stands way back. And he won't even look up. But instead, he starts to beat his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, that man went back to his house justified. That he went back to his house justified rather than the other. And then Jesus clarifies, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then I like how what happens right after that is that people start bringing babies to Jesus. I don't think that's like just a coincidence because what do babies have to offer? Nothing, right? They can't do anything. They can't feed themselves. They can't go to the bathroom by themselves. Some of you are familiar with this. Some of you are too familiar with this. They're bringing babies to Jesus and the disciples say, these are creatures that don't really need to be here right now. And Jesus rebukes them. And in fact, Jesus rebukes them and says, no, in fact, let them come to me, don't hinder them, because to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then he says, truly I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now what does that mean? Does that mean we need to wear diapers? or No. That whoever comes to me like this other man came to me. And who understood, I don't, I, I don't have anything to offer except my sin. Pastor Tim Keller once said this statement when I first heard it stuck with me. He said, Jesus requires one thing of you and your ears perk up. What is it? Jesus requires one thing of you, nothing. The problem is there are very few who have it. There are very few who are willing to admit 
that I have nothing. Because what we typically do and what it just comes naturally to us and what was being done in that day is that you look at the world and you divide the world between the moral and the immoral. You divide the world between the good and the bad. But here's the problem. There is only bad and there is only immoral. And so when Scripture looks at the world instead and when Jesus looks at the world instead, it's divided into the humble and the proud. Those who are willing to admit that I am one of the immoral and I am one of the bad ones and those who are not willing to admit that. You see, the first thing that Jesus tells, we need, tells us we need in order to be blessed is the humility to know that I can never on my own merit enter your kingdom of heaven. That it is a gift of grace. That we need the humility to receive his charity. Why is that crucial? So that's what it means. Why is it crucial? Well, because there's no one in the church, and Scripture makes this clear elsewhere, there's no one in the church who is there because they somehow earned it. I mean, that's pretty basic. But if we don't have poverty of spirit, and this isn't just something when we first come to Jesus, but this is something that we continually have as a poverty of spirit. And if we don't, if a church without poverty of spirit is an, an elitist social club, that's all it is. It's an elitist social club for people who think there is something about them that makes them distinct from the rest of the world so that God has now shown favor on them above other people. There was something in me that made God notice me. It's crucial that Jesus starts this way. It's sort of like the Ten Commandments. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. If you miss that one, you miss the rest of them, right? All of them flow out of that. And when he comes to these ways in which we are blessed, these marks and these characteristics of those who belong to the kingdom of heaven, if we miss this first one, we miss the rest. Because this is what was happening all around Jesus in his day. This is the world that he entered into. This is the church, I mean, frankly, that he entered into. Those who are saying, it is by what I have done that sets me apart. And what happens when we do that, this is why it's crucial and it still happens today. I mean, we can sort of look at the church and we can look at the church um, and we can look at ourselves. And we can see that if there is not a poverty of spirit, what, there's going to be things that go along with that, right? Right? If there's no poverty of spirit, there's almost certainly going to be a neglect of the poor. Almost always. Because what we say when we don't have a poverty of spirit is that we think that our accomplishments and our wealth and our possessions are actually indicators somehow of our morality and God's blessing on us. So to see people... Um, who are down and out, to see people who are materially impoverished, that we can look at them and we can say, well, they need to get their act together. And they need to do something about that. And so the social elitist attitude is a result of a lack of poverty of spirit, which is a lack of understanding reality, right? 
racism. Racism stems from a lack of spiritual poverty. Because we, 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 might, think, we might equate ethnicity or skin color or culture to being the determining factors for, for belonging to the kingdom. And, and we may never say that out loud. But it's a, maybe it's a driving force in our life. And you hear, you hear it in your own head when you maybe look, of, look at people of different races. But maybe it just comes down to the fact that it, without a poverty of spirit, what we will do inevitably is we will shun people who we think are real sinners. You know what I mean? Like, without a poverty of spirit, there's always going to be a category for, you, yes, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners here. Um, lie, I've lied on occasion, done some things that are sort of bad. But then there's this other category. And they're like the real sinners. And they've done stuff that we can never imagine ourselves doing. And we don't necessarily want to be around them. Without a poverty of spirit, there's sort of a line drawn where we think, yeah, we're bad, but we're not that bad. Right? And so what we're essentially saying is belonging to the kingdom of heaven is a result of my own morality, my own goodness, and my own good decision-making. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a little book um, years ago called Life Together. Some of you have read it. It's about kind of Christian community. And there's a quote in there where he says this. He says, it may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship and common prayer and all their fellowship and service, they may still be left in their loneliness. Because the final breakthrough to real fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship with one another as undevout, as sinners. He says, the pious fellowship permits no one to be an actual sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship because we dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. He doesn't really mince his words, does he? So what is it? It's understanding that I, I, I lack the resources and I can't get them. It's knowing that I don't just need a plan. I need a rescuer. I need a savior. Why is it crucial? Because without it, we begin to drift into thinking that we had something to do with this. And then how do we get it? Well, that's the tricky part because it's not something that you do. It's actually something that you discover, right? Right? And it's not something that you can fake. And you maybe have met someone before who understood um, that, yes, Christians are ones who are poor in spirit. And the way that they interpreted that is they sort of kind of moped around and tried to act, you know, kind of hunched over, tried to act real humble. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I know they're bad, but you don't know me, you know. It's not pretending that we're somehow poor in spirit. We're all actually poor in spirit. There's just some who understand it and recognize it, and there's some who need to be shown it, right? 
And the good news, how do we get it? Well, the good news this morning is that God actually helps us with this because unless God shows it to us, we will never see it. And so God actually reveals it to us. But he often does that in a way that we don't necessarily enjoy. Because if, if what is happening when we understand our own spiritual poverty, what is being destroyed is the things that we thought made us righteous. The things that we thought set us apart. Or the things that we thought might make us somehow noticeable to a holy and righteous God. And so God is kind enough to often strip those away from us so that we actually see our spiritual poverty, so that we might actually be led to life. There's a writer who I think shows us this better than any theologian and any philosopher that I've ever read. It's an old southern writer named Flannery O'Connor. And if you've ever read her short stories, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And there's one in particular where it's, it's called Revelation. And the reason it's called Revelation is because there's a certain character who actually receives a revelation. She receives a revelation about herself, but it comes... Um, in a very interesting way. So it takes place, I'll tell you real quick, it takes place the, almost the entire thing in a, a doctor's office waiting room. And there's a woman named Miss Turpin with her husband Claude, and they come into this, this doctor's office waiting room in rural Georgia in the middle of the last century. And Miss Turpin on the outside, she, is, um, she has a good disposition. She's a church-going woman. And they're just salt-of-the-earth good people. And she walks into this doctor's office waiting room, and what we have access to is we have access to her thoughts, right? And so what she immediately does is she begins to size up everyone in the waiting room. There's the nicely dressed lady. There's the white trash lady. In a little while, um, a, a young black boy will come in or make a delivery, and you can guess what he is in her mind. And what we, what we know as we listen to her thoughts is that this woman has completely categorized the entire waiting room and she has put herself kind of in a respectable, decent spot. And everyone else, she's just constantly judging over and over and over again. And there's one girl in that waiting room who, she's a college student, she's home for the summer, and Flannery O'Connor describes her as sort of overweight, and her face was blue with acne. And her name is Mary Grace. It's not by accident. And she's sitting there reading a book on human development. And the whole time she's listening to Miss Turpin, this self-righteous, bigoted, racist woman who has the appearance of being a decent church-going person. She's listening to her, and she's growing more and more angry, and she begins to scowl at Miss Turpin. And Miss Turpin is thinking, why is this young girl scowling at me? But she continues to talk to the nice lady next to her, and she's saying all sorts of horrible things that sound really lovely. And finally, Mary Grace takes her book and hurls it at Miss Turpin, and it, and it hits her right above the, her left eye, and she goes down, and before you know it, Mary Grace is on top of her, choking her. 
And the doctors rush in and they pull Mary Grace off of her. And Miss Turpin looks at her and she says, what you got to say to me, girl? And Mary Grace looks at her and says, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Okay, kids, never say that to anybody. (laughs) Sometimes grace meets us in a way that we never would have imagined. Because those words stuck in her head the rest of the day, and she goes home back to her farm, and she cannot quit thinking about it. And she finally gets angry about it, and she screams at God about it, and she's out in her pig pen washing it down, and the sun is going down, and she receives this revelation. Listen to it. She saw a streak in the sky as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. And upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives, and a band of blacks and white robes, and a battalion of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing on key. Here's the line. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Even their virtues were being burned away. Jesus once turned to the chief priests and turned to the scribes and he said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will enter the kingdom of heaven before you will. That is a book in the face. John, the Apostle John, received also a revelation. And in that revelation, there were seven letters to seven churches, and one of the churches was called Laodicea, Laodicea, excuse me. And they were doing just fine, and they were wealthy, and they were very moral looking. And the letter was sent to them by Jesus. And this is what the letter said to them You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens it, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. We often think of those last lines as some sort of evangelistic sort of story. He's talking to people in the church. And what he says to them, those who I love, I love them enough that I rebuke them 
and I discipline them, not to harm them. That he rebukes and he disciplines those he loves because he leads them into he leads them into deep, deep joy and freedom. How do we get it? Jesus tells us, he says, be earnest and repent. Look honestly at yourself. To be conscious of our impoverished spirit actually leads us to living water. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We would never have come up um, with this on our own. And we still resist it in so many ways. And we still play the game of looking at ourselves versus other people and measuring um, who may get in and who may get out. But Father, we thank you that what you look at is the heart. And so, Father, I pray that what you would continually produce in us is a heart that is humble before you, that a, a heart that knows um, what Jesus has told us, that we can do nothing uh, without you. And so, Father, we pray that you, as you do that, that you would even rebuke us and discipline us so that we might see ways in which we too are blind, so that we might see ways in which we are bigoted, that we might see ways in which we are, are, are racist, or that we shun people because we actually think deep down um, that we are better. And so, Father, help us to see that so that we might be sanctified and more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.